are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Verses you know by memory. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, for the mercies of God are in view of all God's mercies. Considering all the mercies of God, they are high as the heavens. They are new every morning. The mercy of God that I'm born in America. I have healthy children. I have a lovely wife. I have a beautiful home. The mercy of God, I can pay my bills on time. It may be cold, but I have heat. The mercies of God, I have food to eat. I have fresh air to breathe. I'm in a free country. I know what freedom is. I can pray or not pray. I can read my Bible or not read my Bible. I can go to church or stay at home. I'm afraid we in America take the mercies and liberties of God for granted. But Paul says, I beseech you, I plead with you, I beg you, brothers. That's not unsaved people, that's saved people. There are two groups of children in the world. There are those who trusted Christ as Savior, and thus they're the sons of God. And those who are not trusted Christ as Savior, and they're the sons of Satan. And we have trusted Christ, our brothers in Christ. And Paul's addressing Christians, not unsaved people. He's addressing the same kind of crowd I'm addressing tonight, and he says, I plead with you, Christians, in view of all God's mercies, that you present your body a living sacrifice. I'm talking about the body. I'm not talking about the spirit. Folks say, well, I was not there in body, but I was certainly there in spirit. Well, I don't want to be cruel, but I'd much rather you'd keep your spirit at home with your body. I don't think God has a ghost-to-ghost hookup. He may, but I don't think he does. You're not going to do much with your spirit. What you do, you'll do with your body. God has no hands but your hands. He has no feet but your feet, no eyes but your eyes. No mouth but your mouth. Francis Ridley Havergill wrote the consecration hymn, Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. She's presenting her body a living sacrifice. She said, Take my tongue and let me sing only always for my king. She said, Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. She's presenting her body a living sacrifice. Then she must have read the rest of this passage because she said, Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. When God gets your will, he's got your body. He's talking about your body. In view of all God's mercies, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to the world, Don't be in tune with the world. Don't be in harmony with the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And why does he plead with us to do all this? That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, if you prove God's will to anybody, you won't prove it to God. God already knows his will. 
If you prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God, you will prove it to yourself. I said this morning to the young people who were here, I jotted down a number of things some time ago that I would do if I was a teenager again. And one thing would be I'd discover God's will for my life as soon as I could. The second thing, I'd get all the education I could in line with God's will for my life. And I assure you tonight that God has a perfect will for your life. You're not an accident. You're here on purpose. The members of your body were prescribed in a book long before you were born. The size of your ears, the color of your eyes, the size of your nose, the color of your hair, your height. The only thing that wasn't prescribed in the book was your wit. You are responsible for that. But the rest of it God wrote down in a book. And the width fluctuates, and the height may shrink a little as you get older. But God knows everything about you, ever have your head is numbered. And I've heard people say there's not but one Dr. Jack Howells, and you're right. There's not one Dr. Lee Robinson, and you're right. But I want to tell you tonight, there's not but one you. You are an original. You're not a copy. There'll never be another one just exactly like you. One day I was thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful if Charles Spurgeon was a pastor of Forest Hills Baptist Church in Atlanta? What a great church he could build. And God seemed to say to me, though I heard no audible voice, if I had wanted Charles Spurgeon, the pastor of Forest Hills Baptist Church, it would have been no trouble for me to arrange it so. If God wanted everybody to be Charles Spurgeons, he'd have made everybody Charles Spurgeons. He only wanted one Spurgeon, and he only wanted him for his generation. But when God saw that I was born, he wanted me. He wanted a Curtis Hudson. I heard the fable of a king who walked back to his palace and uh, he had walked in the garden and all the trees were unhappy. All the plants were unhappy. And he said to the oak tree, why are you unhappy? And he said, I'm unhappy because I don't stand tall and straight like the pine. And he went to the pine tree and said, why are you unhappy? He said, I'm unhappy because I don't have a huge trunk and strong limbs as the oak. He went to the dogwood and said, Why are you unhappy? He said, I'm unhappy because I'm low and squatty and I'm not tall like the pine, neither I have huge limbs like the oak. All the trees and plants were sad, but on the way back to the palace, the king noticed a little daisy next to the walk, and the daisy was smiling. He seemed to be very, very happy. And the king said, Well, you're the only one in the whole garden that seems happy. Why are you so happy? And the daisy smiled and said, I figured when the king planted me, he wanted a daisy. And I want to be the best daisy in the king's old garden. And when the king planted you, he wanted you. He wanted a Ray Hart. He wanted a Gary Coleman. He wanted a Joe Boyd. He wanted a Curtis Hudson. And he wanted an Aaron Manley and whatever your name is. He wanted you when he made you exactly like you are. And my ministry at my church took on a new meaning when I realized that I was God's first choice above all the preachers that had ever lived to be the pastor of Forest Hills Baptist Church from 1950-something to 1977. God chose me above Dr. Lee Robinson, above Dr. Jack Howes, above R.A. Torrey, above Spurgeon, above J. Weber Smith, uh, and J. Weber Chapman, and Weber Smith. He chose me above... Uh, uh, Martin Luther, he chose me above every preacher that ever lived to be the pastor of that church for those years. And I went back to that little basement building and my ministry took on new meaning. And God chose you to be where you are. I want you to do me a favor, and I'll try to make this as short as I can. I'll try to stop by 9 o'clock. I probably will in the morning. 
Get you a pencil, please, and put a little dot. If you have a piece of paper, put a dot on one side of the paper. If you don't have a piece of paper, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, up at the top of that chapter, write a little dot toward the left-hand side of the top of the page. And I hope you'll all cooperate. And go to the right-hand side, write another little dot. Now, don't take too long. You shouldn't take long to write dots now. I get worried about you there in a few minutes. Just a dot. Don't have to be a professional dot. Just a dot. Now, you got two little black dots. Maybe they're six inches apart, about six inches, a little further. Don't make any difference. So they're separated. And now then I want you to take a line and just draw a straight line from the dot on the left to the dot on the right. And now you've got a minute to a barbell. You've got a straight line with a little dot on either end of the line. Now, on the left-hand dot, and keep working with me. Don't, work it, don't worry about the guy next to you. You do it now. And that means he's on the platform too. You work, you watch them, see if they're doing it, okay? If they're not doing it, look at them real funny. They'll maybe get the pencil out and get busy, alright? Now the dot on the left hand side of the line, write birth. Because it was a day when you were born. If you remember when you were born and don't mind writing it down, you may put it down. If I was doing what you're doing, I'd write July the 10th, 1934. I'm 49 years old. Somebody asked me if I thought I'd reach middle age, and I said, I hope so. I hope I live to be 98. That'd be wonderful. And I may have reached middle age. I'm not sure. Middle age is when you get it all together and forget where you put it. I may have arrived. And somebody else says middle age is when you, uh, when you know all the answers and nobody asks you the questions. But honestly, there are three sure signs of middle age. First, you start forgetting things. And I don't remember the other two, but anyway. <laughs> but write birth on the left-hand side. Write birth. Put your date. Now, if you're sitting next to some nosy individual and you don't, you don't want to know how old you are, put any date you want to and scare them to death. It'll be all right with me. But just write birth. I notice some people looking over others' shoulders. They're very interested in this. Write birth on that side. Now, move all the way across to the dot on the right-hand side and just write death. I want you to look at your life. You're looking at your life. Your life consists of a space of time between the time you're born and the time you die. That's the life as you know it here. There's an eternal life in heaven. I'm talking about the life here on this earth now. Now write birth on one end, death on the other end. Now don't write no date over death because you don't know when you're going to die. I said, I think Sunday morning here, I don't think I'm going to die, and if I do die, it'll shock me so bad it'll take my breath. And I doubt if I'll say anything for several days. I'm not sure. Dr. Lakin said the way to keep from dying is to find out where you're going to die and don't ever go there. That's good advice. I like that. And I've been working on that 49 years. I can't find out where I'm going to die. He said, another way to keep from dying is don't go to the hospital. He said, most people die in a hospital. If they start to take it, this is scream, bloody murder. Don't let them take it to the hospital. He said, most people die in bed. He said, so stay out of the bed. Just don't lay in there long. If you must lay down, don't stay long. Get up. Everybody nearly dies in bed. Well, that makes sense. I've discovered, though, that every year I live past January the 1st, I live for the rest of the year. So I'm sure I'll make it the rest of this year. Has that been your situation too? I mean, every day, every year, I, I make it the rest of the year. I'm sure I'll make it. You still awake? All right, you got birth on one end, you got death on the other. Now then, get real serious with me. You don't like to think about this, but you are somewhere on that line right now. 
And I want you to take your pencil, and don't be nosy, but I want you to take your pencil, I want you to look at your life. I want you to move that pencil along the line very slowly to where you think you are right now. I'm 49. I think I'm going to live to be 100. I'm working on it. I'm not sure I'll make it. But if I don't choke to death on those great big vitamin C tablets, I believe I'll make it. But take your pencil. If I were doing what you was doing, I'd move halfway across the line because I think I'm probably halfway. Now you say, you're crazy, man. You'll never live to be 100. I don't know. May not. I read the obituary column every day, and every time I see one that made it over 100, I just have a fit. I noticed oh, in the last two weeks I haven't found anybody that'll be over 100. The oldest one I found is 94. And it kind of scared me. They're dying too early for me. But I'd move my, I'd move my pencil halfway across. Now, you're 30 years old. You think you'll live to be 90, move it one-third of the way. If you're 25, you think you'll learn to be 50, move it, live to be 50, move it half the way. Move the pencil where you honestly think you are. If you're 60, you think you'll live to be uh, 75, move it as far as you need to move it to represent those many years. But you figure it out, and I want you to, if you don't even, if you don't draw the line and look at it, I want you to get a mental picture of the line. I want you to see the birth, the death. I want you in your mind to move across the line to where you think you are. If you got it fixed yet, I know it's a little depressing for some of you, but I want you to look at it. It's going away very, very fast. Very, very fast. Now then, I want you to play like. You have to play like when you was a kid. Play like you're Roy Rogers, or play like you're Hopalong Cassidy, or Play like you're Gene Autry and you're sitting on a horse and playing your guitar and you're singing and your voice never quivers though the horse is running wide open. You've done that, I guess. I want you to play like. I want you to play like for the next few minutes that we're leaving the meeting tonight and we're going all the way down to the end of the line where it says death. And I'm going to move down the end of the line myself. I'm 49, so I'm moving down. I'm 59. I'm 69, now I'm moving down the line. I'm 79, I'm 89, I'm 99. And I'm at the end of the line. I'm going to die. I'm pressing a dying pillow. But let's imagine we're all at the end of the line. We're about to die. Imagine you are there. If you can do it. I know you don't like to, but try to do it. Imagine you're at the end of the line. You're pressing a dying pillow. You'll be dead in two or three hours. But you're, you're wide awake. Your mind is keen, sharp. You're not senile. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer it. Now, you're on the end of the line. You're looking back to the place where you just made the cross on the line. I want you to answer this question. I want you to write your answer down somewhere where nobody else can see it. If you don't write it down now, write it when you get back to your room tonight. If you look back from the end of the line to where you put the cross on it, what do you have to see between the place where you put that cross on the line and the end of it in order to say to yourself as you're dying, my life was a success. You can forget everything on the left-hand side of that cross because you can't change that. Tomorrow's gone. It'll never come back. Last week is gone. Last year's record's already made. Last week's grades are already made. You can't change a thing that happened yesterday and day before. The only thing you can change on that line is what's on the right-hand side out to the point where you die. Now, don't answer it out loud, but do you see anything at all on that line? I suggest to you that if you don't see anything on that line, that you're not ready to live the rest of your life. Young people come to me and say, would you recommend to me a good Christian college? I said, I probably can. Answer me. What do you plan to do with your life? What do you see yourself doing when you're 30 years old? Well, they say, I have no idea what I'll be doing. I don't have any idea. 
then I say I cannot recommend a school. You see, if you're going to be a lawyer, I wouldn't send you to med school. If you're going to be a, if you're going to be a, 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 a doctor, I would not send you to law school. You ought to get the education in line with God's calling for your life, whatever that calling is. Everybody's not supposed to be a preacher. Everybody's not supposed to be a missionary. Some of you ladies who have now five and six and seven-year-old children, at least you'll look back on that line when you press a dying pillow and see three beautiful, grown Christian ladies and gentlemen. You ought to see them out with their little homes and their little grandchildren that you hope to have someday. You ought to see something on that line. You say, no way that anybody can answer your question. I think so. When Paul reached the end of the line, he said, I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I finished the course. Hang on, Paul. You finished the course. What was the course? If he didn't know what the course was, he would not know when he had finished the course. He knew it was over. Before Dr. Bill Rice died, he said to his wife, Princess, my ministry is through. It's finished. If you don't know where you're going, you won't know when you get there. And the reason most people never succeed in life is because they have no definite aim, no definite goal, no definite dream, no definite vision, and, and they never accomplish anything that is rambled through life hoping that something will happen accidentally. It never happens to anybody accidentally. Where there's no vision, Dr. Malone preached last night, people perish. I want to tell you something. I have never done anything in my life that I did not see myself doing first. I say this to young people everywhere, dream and dream big. It costs them more to shoot at eagles than it does at skunks. I say to young people everywhere, dream and dream big. You may never do everything you dream you'll do, but mark this down and be sure it's correct that you'll never do any more than you dream. I went to the Sword Conference in 1961, and I sat right back there. Conference like this, only a much smaller crowd. I heard Dr. Rice and Dr. Tom Malone and Dr. Jack Howes. I heard them talk about churches that I did not know existed. I heard Dr. Howes talk about the great Highland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he screamed and hollered and spit, as he does when he preaches. And he says, why isn't there a church like this in Atlanta? Why is there a church like this in Atlanta? Why is there a church like this in Atlanta? Somebody ought to do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And I said, that guy's dropped the cheese out of his sandwich. I mean, somebody took the books off his library shelves or something. That guy's crazy. He said, do it, do it, do it, do it, screamed and yelled and spit and hollered. And as I thought about Atlanta, I said, there's not a church in Atlanta that's baptizing a thousand converts a year. There's not a church in Atlanta that even has 1,500 in Sunday school. There's not a church in Atlanta that's uh, even in the top 100 Sunday schools in the nation. And Atlanta's a hub city of the South, and he's screaming, why doesn't somebody do it? Why doesn't somebody do it? He screamed and yelled, and you'll forgive me. But I sat back there and I caught a vision. And I put on the line out in my future, the largest church in the state of Georgia. Big thinking for a little fella. I know what you're thinking. Yep, you're right. 
It's like the guy trying to shoot the moon with a BB gun. The guy said, what are you doing? He said, I'm shooting at the moon. He said, you'll never hit it with that air rifle. He said, I may not, but I'm getting closer to it than you are. Give me the guy that shoots and aims high and he doesn't hit his target. And I left that conference dreaming someday. Just the conference like you. And I left that. And I said, if God Almighty lets me live, someday I'll be the pastor of the largest church in the state of Georgia. And I'll not only be the pastor of the largest church in the state of Georgia, I'll have Dr. Rice and Dr. Howells back and Dr. Malone, and they'll conduct the conference in my church just like this one I attended. I also put on that line, I'd like to see one of my sermons in the sword of the Lord someday. And then I'm afraid to tell you this, but I even sat back there where you're sitting and I dreamed someday of preaching on the platform with Dr. Rice and Dr. Howells. To me, they were the popes of fundamentalism. They may not be your popes, but you can have any pope you want. I got mine. To me, they were the biggest things in fundamental circles, and I just said, if I could ever one day preach in a conference with Dr. Rice and Dr. Howells, just one time, and have one sermon of the sword, I could keep that issue and show it to my grandkids. And I could tell them I one time preached on the same platform with Dr. John R. Rice and Dr. Jack Howells, the pastor of the largest church in America. That was only a dream. It was only a vision. But may I remind you that everything in the world, from the tiniest rat trap to the world's most complicated computer, was once only a dream in somebody's soul. But the inventor saw it. And he kept on seeing 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 it. Until by and by, everybody else saw it. And one day I saw Forest Hills Baptist Church physically built, and I saw it full of people. But I saw it before anybody else ever saw it. I saw it before my wife saw it. Even sketched off the plans, not that, uh, not specifications and not anything builders could follow, but a rough plan of what I'd like to see built on that hill. It was a dream in my soul. And when I saw it in reality, and others saw it, they came to Atlanta and said, I bet you never ever thought you'd pastor a church this large. And I guess they thought I was going to say, no, I never thought I'd ever pastor a church this large. It's really strange how it happened. I just came over here one morning and there it was on a hill, beautiful big church. What do you mean I never dreamed it? I used to ride up down the streets of Atlanta and chase bad accounts for community loan company. I recognize some of you people too. And I drive up down the streets of Atlanta and chase bad accounts and I had a little Hudson Jet automobile. I'm not sure it was an automobile. You didn't get in it. You put it on. But I drive down the streets of Atlanta and I'd visualize out over the hood of that car thousands of people. Just a dream in my soul. Just a vision. I'd visualize thousands of people and I'd hold the steering wheel at a Hudson Jet and before I knew it I'd be doing 75 miles an hour. Preaching, screaming, hollering, spitting and spitting on the windshield and saying you don't get born again. You're going to hell. You need to be born again. I'd spit and holler and scream till my voice wore out. And then I gave an invitation. 500 people climbed over the hood and down the front seat to get saved. And I pulled off the South Expressway and one by one led all of them to Christ and gave every one of them a set of tithing envelopes. Just a vision, just a dream. 
But it kept me happy all day that day that I'm down the expressway. And I had people look at me when I'd be preaching and screaming like that and nobody in the car would be just staring at me. I used to pray like that. People would see me pray and think I was crazy. One day I saw a guy with a telephone in his car and he'd be talking about it all. He is crazy. So I just tore the receiver off of the phone, tied the wire around my telephone, around my steering wheel. And when I wanted to pray, I just grabbed that old receiver and hold it up and they thought I was really a dude. Man, I had my own telephone. It wasn't hooked up, but I've had another hookup on the other side, way up high. Yeah. Dreaming, dreaming. You think I'm an exception to the rule? Dr. Jack Howes told you about his own father. So I don't tell you anything. He didn't tell you he was a drunken father. When Dr. Howes told him God had called him to preach, he cursed Dr. Howes. And I'll, I'll shorten the story by simply saying that he said to Jack, Dr. Jack Howells, if you're going to be a preacher and build the biggest blankety-blank church in the country. And in Dr. Howells' bosom was born a dream and a desire and a vision someday to have the largest Sunday school in America. That didn't just happen. And you think Dr. Howells now an exception? The pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. The largest Southern Baptist church in the world. This year, subscribed the largest budget in the world, $10.7 million, oversubscribing a budget of $9.4 million by a million three hundred thousand. And Kenny McComas told me this story. Dr. W.A. Crizzle was a student in a Southern Baptist college, and he taught on faith in the class one day, and Dr. Crizzle stood and said, By faith, I'm going to pastor Dr. George Truett's church. And they called him Crazy Criswell. But you know who's over there tonight? Crazy Criswell. The guy that stood up in a class and said, By faith, I'm going to pass to that church. I'm just saying big things don't accidentally fall in your lap. How many know Herb Fitzpatrick? How many know Herb Fitzpatrick? Raise your hand. I hate to tell this story. Herb Fitzpatrick is the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Riverdale, Maryland, the largest church in Maryland. Herb Fitzpatrick has the distinction that no other pastor in America has. He pastored two Sunday schools. Both of them were listed in the 100 largest Sunday schools, one in Connorsville, Indiana, and the other in Riverdale, Maryland. Dr. Howes only has one. Dr. Farwell has one. Dr. Robinson has one. Dr. Fitzpatrick pastored two churches, both listed in the top 100 Sunday schools. When I first met Herb Fitzpatrick, I was a little bit taken back because Herb has a little voice like this. Sounds funny. Talks like a, almost like a woman. And they said, that's Dr. Herb Fitzpatrick. And I said, and Dr. Fitzpatrick invited me to First Baptist Church in Riverdale, Maryland for a revival meeting. And I checked in the hotel on Saturday night, and my phone rang, and somebody said, Brother Curtis, this is Herb. Did you get checked in all right? I said, yeah, I'm all right. Well, he said, everything's ready. We're going to have a great revival. I'll pick you up in the morning at 8 o'clock. You'll preach in an early service, and then we'll have a second service. We're going to have a good revival. Everything's ready hung the phone up and I walked through the room and said, we're going to have a great revival. 
I wish to God I was at home. We gonna have a great revival. <clears throat> Who didn't have a great revival? The preacher like that. He picked me up the next morning. The early service packed and jammed. The second service packed and jammed. Before I left there, we had 153 people saved and come forward for baptism. When I called my wife to meet me at the airport, I said, I'll be home on flight 734. <laughs> I thought that's what you had to do to get it, man. I thought that was it. You had talked like that to build two of the biggest churches in America. You don't think I'm curious about Herb Fitzpatrick? Why is he the pastor of the largest church in Maryland? I said, Herb, where'd you go to school? Well, he said, I went to Arlington Baptist College when Dr. J. Frank Norris was there. I said, Herb, did you ever dream you'd ever pastor a church this big? Well, he said, yeah. So when I was a student at Arlington College when J. Frank Norris was there, said they used to ask me what I was going to do, and I said, God wants me to be the pastor of a large Baptist church. Don't you know right over there at Arlington when Herb was a boy and there's the others over there and Herb said, God wants me to be the pastor of a large Baptist church. Don't you know the kids said, <laughs> and ran around behind the buildings and laughed at Herb? But those that spit and laughed are not passing the large Baptist churches. It's Herb Fitzpatrick that's passing the large Baptist church. In 1972, Dr. Heiser and I, they were together in a conference like this. After the conference, we, he said, let me take you out and buy you a steak. And I fine. We're driving down the expressway. He's driving and he's talking. He said, Kurt, Dr. Rice is getting old. He said, he may outlive me and you both. But he said, Kurt, what do you think will happen with the sword of the Lord when Dr. Rice is called home, if the Lord calls him home? I said, Dr. Rice, you preached in these conferences with Dr. Rice 20-something years. You know more about that than I do. You tell me. Well, he said, Dr. Bill Rice will be the editor, of course. He's his brother, and he's the co-editor now. He waited for my reply. And after some silence, I said, Dr. Bill Rice will never be the editor of the Sword of the Lord. And Dr. Jack Howell said to me, well, you're wrong. That's why Dr. Rice moved to Murfreesboro. That's where Bill is, and Bill's the co-editor now, and he's the younger brother. And of course, Bill will be the editor of the sword. And I said, never be the editor of the sword of the Lord. He said, why not? I gave him two reasons, but I didn't tell him the real reason. Because when he said that, something down inside of me, no dream, no vision, I don't mean the kind of vision you have when you eat too much buttermilk and cornbread before you go to bed, but just a little something inside, just a little desire. Please don't, don't choose ambition with desire. Desires are God-given when your life is surrendered to Christ. Psalm 37, 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Not the things you desire, but the desires Himself, which harmonizes with Philippians 2, 13. It's God that works in you both the will and to do His good pleasure. And God's going to work in my heart to will. And I saw the sword of the Lord on the line. What a dumb, crazy thing for me. I never finished college or seminary. 
I don't know an adverb from a proverb. I never had a course in journalism. Dr. Rice has, at that time, probably 50,000 preachers on his maiden list. At least he knew that many. Missionaries all included. Why in the world would I ever be the heir to the soul of the Lord? Don't know. But I had a vision. But I vowed I'd never lift my little finger to go there unless Dr. Rice approached me first. In 1977, when I resigned my church, I could not tell them what I was thinking. I felt I was putting myself in position to go to the sword of the Lord someday. Did Dr. Rice ask you? No, not a, not a word he said to me about it. And then one Friday, after I'd been away from the church about a year and a half, I said, Now, dear Lord, if I'm not going to the sword, that's all right with me. But it doesn't seem fair that you put this desire down in my heart and then not bring it to fruition. And I'm not asking you to give me the sword of the Lord Jesus. I said, I just want to know if I'm going to go there so I can make my plans. And I'd like to know soon. I don't like traveling in a spiritual fog. I got back to my office that afternoon at Century Center, Claremont Road, 85 in Atlanta. And Mrs. Hoffman said, Dr. Rice tried to call when you were out. I said, get him on the phone. She got him on the phone. Dr. Rice said to me, Kurt, some of us have been meeting this morning talking about the sword. You know, my brother was co-editor for years. I said, yes, sir. He said, I'd hoped that maybe he'd take over if the Lord called me home. He said, you know, I had a heart attack not long ago. I said, yes, sir. He said, we're thinking that perhaps our readers might like to know what's going to happen to the paper if the Lord were to call me home. We're thinking we ought to have another co-editor here to take over if the Lord calls me home. Would you be interested in that? I just prayed that morning. I said, Dr. Rice, I can't talk over the phone. I'll be up Monday. That's on Friday before Labor Day. On Monday, I went to the office of closing the executive committee, including Mrs. Rice was in the office. And I said, Dr. Rice, now you've called me, and now I can tell you something. But I vowed I'd never tell you if you didn't contact me first. And I told him about my experience with Dr. Howell on the expressway that night. And Mrs. Rice is here. She knows it's true. And Mrs. Rice wept, and she says, isn't that strange? And Dr. Rice wept, and I wept. And before I left that office, I was clear to the sword of the Lord. I know that's a dream I shouldn't have had. A guy with that dream ought to go to college and study English and study journalism. I'd rather know where I'm going and not have the necessary equipment to get me there than to have the necessary equipment to get me there and not know where I'm going. That explains why 32 of the largest Sunday schools in America out of the 100 largest are pastored by men who never went to college or seminary. Not that God loves ignorance. But you trace the graduates of Dallas Theological Seminary and you'll find something out selling bread and selling insurance. As well as some Howells Anderson graduates too probably and, and some, and some uh, Tennessee Temple. Why did God, to, out of the 100 largest, 32 of them are pastored by men the, one of the lists I saw several years ago, they never went to college and seminary. Why? Because those men knew where they were going. Doc, tomorrow, tomorrow, Dr. Charles Biddington will preach. His father, Dallas Biddington, had 10,000 in Sunday school during the Second World War. 
Dallas Biddington only finished the eighth grade. He worked in a rubber plant. But one day he said to his Sunday school superintendent, John Bond, stick with me and we'll build the largest Sunday school in the world. That's exactly what he did. That didn't just happen. We're not hurting because we've had too little, too much vision. We're hurting because we've had too little vision. And the stories go on and on and on and on. You say, Doctor, did you do everything you ever dreamed you'd do? Oh, no. I, but I never did anything I didn't dream. I've dreamed many dreams that never came true. I've seen them vanish at dawn. But I've realized enough of my dreams to make me keep dreaming on. I prayed many prayers when no answer came, though I waited patient and long. But answers have come to enough of my prayers to make me keep praying on. I've sown many seeds that fell by the way for the birds to feed upon. But I've held enough golden sheaves in my hand to make me keep sowing on. I've trusted a few friends who've proven untrue and they've left me to weep alone. But enough of my friends have proven true blue to make me keep trusting on. Three things. The whole text says you do all this that you may prove what is that good and perfect and accept the will of God. And it's not likely that you're going to see anything on the line to do some things in this chapter. I'm not going to preach it. It's going to throw it at you. Number one, you must make yourself available. I beseech you therefore, brothering by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. You're only valuable to God as you are available to God. What good is a $10,000 Stradivarius violin in a glass case in a museum? You're better off with a $10.98 roll, Sears Roebuck fiddle. That's why God places women with Ph.D. degrees and all kind of education, and they live and die and never do anything. But He picks up an eighth grade uh, dropout and builds the largest Sunday school in America. Why? Because that eighth grade dropout was available. Too many Christians remind me of my motel where I stay week after week. I walk down the hallway in the morning and on the doorknobs are little tags that say, Do not disturb, do not disturb, do not disturb. And too many people walk down a church out and trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, then grab the little tag and hung on the doorknob of their heart, Do not disturb. I'm talking to preachers right now that are not really available to God. You think you are. But here's a test. If there's anything you would not do for Christ, if you knew He wanted you to do it, you're not surrendered yet. Anything. That's a big word. I'm talking to businessmen who are not yielded. If there's anything that you would not do for Christ, if you knew He wanted you to do it, you're not yielded yet. You're not surrendered. You're not available. If God wants you to sell out your business and give it all away and start over, you must be willing to do it. I'm not saying that's what He wants you to do. But you must be willing to do anything He wants you, no matter what it is. 
When I made my surrender, I prayed something like this. I said, Dear Lord Jesus, I'm not much, but I give all of myself to you. I've never put into practice Romans 12, but I do it today. I'd been preaching a number of years before I did this. But I said, Jesus, I give you my body from the crown of my head to the sole of my feet. I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll be anything you want me to be. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I not only said it, I meant it. Read the story of Gideon's 300 and see how many they were when they started. He called for volunteers to fight and he got 20,000 volunteers. If he had given an invitation, they'd have walked down an aisle like you've done and they'd have knelt. And they had a yielded. They surrendered. They thought they were surrendered. But as God put them through the sifting, the crowd got thinner and thinner and thinner until there were only 300 left. Tens of thousands of men graduate from Bible college and seminary and when they get through the sifting, there's only a handful of them left building churches and preaching the gospel and holding meetings. Got tough and they gave up. You got to be available. Present your body. I wish I had hours now. I want to teach another hour and a half. Present your body. Your body. God wants your body for a temple. God wants your body for a testing ground. God wants your body for a treasure house. God wants your body for a tool. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. The word present means the place near the hand. How many here have ever tried to drive a nail in a wall with a shoe heel? Raise your hand, let me see it. Don't lie about it, come on. All right, how many ever tried to drive a nail in a wall with a knife handle holding the blade? Raise your hand. Dumb, dumb, dumb. How many ever tried to drive a nail in a wall with a hardback book? Raise your hand. How many ever tried to drive a nail in a wall with a rock? Raise your hand. Now, don't lie about it. How many of you had a hammer somewhere around the house? All the time you were driving nails with knife handles and rocks and shoe heels and books, there was a hammer somewhere, either in the garage or in the trunk of the car somewhere. Raise your hand, let me see it. Dumb, 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 dumb. You know why I thought you might have driven a nail in a wall with a knife handle? Because I have. You know why I thought you might have tried to drive a nail in the wall with a shoe heel? I have. You know why I used a shoe heel? Not because I didn't have a hammer. I have several hammers. But my wife said to me, Curtis, would you please hang this picture for me? And I said, if you'll find a nail, I will, hoping she couldn't find a nail. And the poor thing came back at a while with a nail, and I said, it's too little, I won't hold it. Came back with another nail bigger. So finally I didn't have the nerve to say it won't do, so I took the dumb nail. Where do you want it? She said, on this wall over here. I said, where about She said, a little bit higher. She said, no, that's too high, a little lower. More to the left. She said, hold it there a minute. I held it. She backed up and looked. She said, that's perfect, right there. I'm ready to drive a nail right now. I'm not ready to drive a nail 15 minutes. I'm ready to drive a nail now. And I'm not looking for the best instruments to drive nails with. I'm looking for the available instrument now. 
There's hammers out there that drive nails better, but they're not close enough to my hand. How many ever held a nail up and reached like this? Just looking for anything. You, you done that? Anything. Anything within reach. And all of a sudden, nothing's in reach but your foot. So you reach down, off comes your shoe, and God drives them to over nail in. When God got ready to build the biggest church in Georgia, He didn't look for the most handsome man in Georgia, though He found him. God was looking for the hammer that was closest to His hand. Don't you see that? And God said, well, let's see. That guy over there is too far. I can't reach that guy. He's been to seminary and college, but I can't get old of him. He's too far out. But I had got on that basement floor and said, Lord, I'm yours. I'm kind of it. But he said, here's a little dumb thing here. He don't know much. He thinks post millennial is a breakfast cereal. He's kind of dumb, but, but I can drive a nail with him, I think. And God drove a nail. You see, when God is there to do a job, He doesn't look for the most, He doesn't look for the best instrument. He doesn't look for the polished instrument. He looks for the available instrument. And then He sharpens the hole to suit His own purpose and holds out His role and makes the world marvel at what He used. A stammering, stuttering Moses who couldn't even talk. God said, go down to the let my people go. And Moses said, did it, did it, did it. He looked at that. He said, it's all good, Lord. He said, who made your tongue? He said, you did. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send Aaron with you. And I hear him do the talking. Moses said, okie dokie. God said, what you got in your hand? Moses said, that staff, rod, Lord. He said, throw it now. He said, Good night. It's a snake now, Lord. The Lord said, take him up with a tail, Moses. Moses said, I can't talk good now. I'm having trouble hearing too, Lord. You'll find that in the original Hebrew. There's a sermon in the sword. I put it in this week. It'll be in the next picture. It's entitled, Take for Nobody. When Moses thought he could, he couldn't. When he thought he couldn't, he did. He took inside, he took the uh, Egyptian and flew him single-handed. He tried to take everything in his own hands, so he thought he could handle it, and he failed. But when God asked him to go back seven times, he said, I can't. I can't. I'm shocked when I read through these pages. He had God with an ox of gold, but he was available. A lad with five loaves and two fish, but he's available. A Samson with the only weapon in his hands, a jawbone of an ass, but he's available. I'm shocked. It's not who you are, but who you are that makes you valuable and important in life. You gotta be available. Number two, you gotta be acceptable. I said I wouldn't preach this, didn't I? I lied about it. Lord, help me. You've got to be acceptable. Present yourself. Your body's a living sacrifice. Watch it. Holy. Acceptable. And you're not acceptable if you're not holy. 
And don't be afraid of the word holy, it's a good word. In the Old Testament it means something that's awful. Not because it's bad, but because it fills with awe the person who comes in contact with a holy thing. They're all right. It just means separation. Clean living. My mother and daddy divorced when I was 16 years old and both moved away. I was in Atlanta on my own at 16 years old. I'm not bragging, but please listen to me. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. Never a drop of beer in my mouth in my life. Never a drop of whiskey in my mouth in my life. Don't know what it tastes like. I live moral and pure and clean. When I married my wife, I was clean. I kept my life pure and moral. I didn't have to. I was on my, be still. I was on my own when I was six, just leave it alone, it's okay. I was on my own when I was 16 years old. Many times I've been out like these teenagers over here with boys at night in an automobile and they'd start drinking and I'd almost get the bottle in my hand and something inside would say, Curtis, I know your daddy's gone, your mother's gone, and you're here by yourself in Atlanta and nobody whip you when you go home tonight and whip is W-H-U-P, that's something short of electric here up in Georgia. Nobody would be when you get home, but Curtis, you kept it clean this long, keep it clean. Not turn and run from it. Not bragging. There's nothing wrong with being wholly acceptable. And if I was a young man tonight and had no life before, I'd make a vow to God I'd keep myself clean and pure and moral and holy, and I would live clean as I possibly could. You must make yourself available, and you must make yourself acceptable. You think that's the same story? Bill Aiken told the same story. Billy Graham told the same story. I'm not unique in that. Make yourself available. Make yourself acceptable. Number three, and I told you, make yourself adaptable. Where do I get that one? And this expression that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. God will may, may mean change. It doesn't necessarily mean change, but it may mean change. And if I'm not willing to do God's will, even if it means change, then I will not yet know what God's will is. I've had to make some changes. John 7, 17 said, He that will do his will shall know the doctrine. Not he that's curious to know it will know it, but he that will do it will know it. Your wife says, you, when you do me a favor, you say, what is it? Nobody ever asked me to do a favor, and I say, yes. My wife said, Curtis, you do me a favor. I said, what is it? She said, you hadn't done anything for me in a long time. I said, what is it? It won't take you long. I said, what is it? If you love me, you'll do it. What is it? I've learned better than saying I'll do it till I find out what it is. Because one day in Avondale Estate, a drunk came walking to the service station and said, Would you take me home? He is crying. I said, Yes, I said, Get in the car. I said, The fellows, I'll be back in a little while. We started down the road. I said, Which way? He said, Down this way. And I drove down 78 Highway past Stone Mountain, Georgia. I said, Which way? He said, It's still on 78. I passed Monroe. I've been going about an hour now. And finally, I said, The guy, Where do you live? He said, Ballin Springs, North Carolina. And I called my wife on the phone and said, Honey, I'll be late. I'm taking a man home. She said, Where in the world does he live? 
I said, Boiling Springs, North Carolina. You taking a man to Boiling? I said, Shut up, I'll be home. I done committed myself. So I learned never to say I'll do it till I find out what it is. But you can't come to God and God has to say, Hey, will you do my will? And you say, Well, what is your will? I decide if I want to do it. God says, No, you decide you'll do it, and I'll tell you what it is. If you will do it, you shall know the doctrine. And that's what this is, being willing to adapt. People said to me, when I first resigned the church, they said, I bet it's the hardest decision you ever made in your life. Man, you're the largest church in Georgia, President of the Baptist University of America. Man, I bet it's a hard decision. And they thought I'd say yes. I said, oh no, the hard decision was made in 1961. When I said, I'll do anything, I'll do anything, I'll go anywhere. Because every decision I've ever made since then was wrapped up in that one decision. I don't make any more decisions. I made them all when I made that one. All I want on is what does God want? Now, I just do. I don't ask who will like it. I don't ask would it make me popular. I don't ask would it cost somebody to send a million dollars towards the Lord. I say, is this right? Well, I'm going to face God soon. And I want to know that I've stuck with exactly what it says, regardless of what people think about it. I want to be, I want to be loved. I won't do right. You must be available, you must be acceptable, and you must be adaptable, and then you prove to yourself what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. I preached 30 minutes longer than I intended to. But I'm not through. I'm going to stop. I'm not through. But don't worry, I haven't finished the sermon in 27 years. I just preach them until people get sleepy and I quit. I preached to one guy, I kept taking his watch, he kept looking at his watch, looking at his watch, and looking at his watch, and I, I just finally got over it. Didn't bother me. Then he took it off and shook it and listened to it. And I thought that was ridiculous. Then he brought a calendar to church and started tearing the pages off while I preached. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNVBC.com for Christian music you can trust.